Hello out there, and thank you for joining me. I'm Dan Roberts, and today we are going to give PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, one more think. In my professional life, when I'm not making this podcast, I am a therapist that specializes in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. I've been working with trauma cases for the last 15 years, both in and out of the military, and have come to know and understand post-traumatic stress disorder better than I ever thought I would, sometimes better than I wish I did. It was not originally my goal when I became a therapist to start doing trauma work, but that's where I found the need to be the most urgent, and I kept finding myself called to apply my skills where the need was greatest. And when I first joined the military, there was a spike in suicides. There was a massive increase in PTSD cases. So that's where I spent the majority of my time in the military, applying my trade. So I want to start off with uh, an overview of PTSD. Talk about what it is and what it isn't. There's a lot of misconceptions about it. Some, in some circles, PTSD is almost vogue. It's expected that people will have PTSD when they belong to a certain population. And there are other circles in which PTSD is seen as a hoax. People don't take it seriously, don't believe that it's real. Oddly enough, there's some Venn diagram overlap between those two circles. Uh, within the military, there are those who feel like PTSD is a hoax, that it's a joke. And in that same military circle, there are people who see PTSD as almost a badge of honor, that if you've gone to combat, you will have had PTSD almost guaranteed in light of all of that confusion. I wanted to put out an episode that clarifies, first off, specifically what PTSD is, We'll also talk about what PTSD is not, some of the misconceptions that are out there in the hopes that someone who thinks they might have this disorder but hasn't sought care for it might get a little bit of clarification. Also in the hopes that if you're living with someone who you think might have PTSD, that we can clarify some of the warning signs, some of the actual symptoms versus some of the just suspected issues or what is normal when someone's been traumatized. There are both healthy and unhealthy ways to react to a trauma. But maybe, first off, I should define trauma. Trauma is one of those words that everybody uses but doesn't have a very good definition, i found. A trauma is, can be anything. It can be any event. It doesn't have to be the death of a loved one or a near-death experience. Just about anything can be traumatizing. A trauma is any negative event that produces a haunting after effect. So if you are crossing the street and you almost get hit by a car and afterwards you're afraid every time you cross the street, you feel a palpable rise in your anxiety and your fear levels when you cross the street. Well, it's entirely possible that you were traumatized by that near accident. Under normal circumstances, trauma self heals. It'll go away. 
and it usually doesn't take too long, a few weeks perhaps. There may be some lingering after effects of extra caution, but the fear, the intense emotional reaction normally will resolve. When the trauma is so intense or so morally injurious, morally damaging, and I'll talk about that more later, but when the trauma specifically calls into question your assumptions about the world, your assumptions about yourself, it makes you feel unsafe at a core level, then those kinds of traumas can stick with you. There are symptoms that we start to see for people who have been traumatized and who react in this way that can start to take over your life. And when the reactions to a trauma start to dismantle other healthy elements of your life, that is the hallmark of a disorder. To put a clearer point on it, if something has happened to you, something horrible, and after a month or two, you're pretty much back to normal, a little wiser perhaps, a little more cautious, but otherwise functioning the way you were before the trauma happened, then your response to trauma was normal and healthy. If a few months after the traumatic event happened, you find yourself frequently during the course of a day having to do things to keep yourself emotionally balanced. You're working hard to not think about what happened. You are restructuring your life to avoid reminders. You can't sleep. You're drinking a lot of alcohol to get yourself to pass out so you don't have nightmares. You're withdrawing from friends, changing your job, etc., etc. If those things all pile up, then it's entirely possible that you have a disorder. That is the definition of disorder. When a reaction or a set of symptoms significantly change your ability to function. Especially when those symptoms persist longer than a month or are gradually getting worse. Those are the things that are really the red flags we look for when diagnosing PTSD. So speaking of diagnosing PTSD, I'm actually going to lay out the formal diagnostic criteria that we use in the clinic to diagnose someone with PTSD, a formal actual diagnosis. Now this is, sometimes this information is held like almost under lock and key, like people in my profession are afraid that the diagnostic criteria will get out that people will know it. Um, I think there's a fear that if the patients have too much access to diagnostic criteria, that they can start malingering more effectively. And I just don't agree with that philosophy. I th All of this stuff is public knowledge anyway. Anybody who wants to can go online and search for the diagnostic criteria for PTSD and get the full DSM-5 list. So I don't think there's any reason to hold this close to our chest. I think when we do hold it close to our chest, it just causes confusion. So the first criterion that has to be met in order for me to diagnose someone formally and officially with PTSD is there must be a trauma, and that's obvious. 
But the trauma has to be of a certain kind, right? a certain type. Obviously, the direct exposure or the direct involvement in a near-death or life-threatening experience qualifies. And that can be anything from crossing the street and almost getting hit by a car, as I said, all the way up to a prolonged firefight in combat in which you lose multiple friends, a rape, the you know, being attacked by an animal. These are obviously traumatizing things. It can also qualify as criterion A if you directly witness someone else be involved in a directly traumatizing event. So if you watch somebody else get shot, if you watch someone else get in a car accident, these kinds of events are immediately uh, impress upon us the, the kinds of flashbulb memories that become problematic as trauma develops. There's also another category of uh, Criterion A in which the learning of the death of a loved one, that dreaded phone call, or in military families, the absolute terror of seeing the mortuary affairs team on your doorstep to let you know the loved one has died, the receiving of that information can very easily be traumatic. And then the last category of allowable trauma for PTSD is professional exposure. This is particularly a problem for people who work in my field who talk about traumatic events over and over and over again all day long. It's called a secondhand trauma or secondary exposure. It can be a very big problem and a lot of people who work in my field will burn out because of the weight of so many traumatic stories that we are exposed to on a routine basis. So once criterion A has been met and there has been an actual event that causes trauma, then we move to criterion B, which is the re-experiencing side of the phenomenon. It's pretty well known that people who have been traumatized will frequently have nightmares for years after the trauma. And that's not necessarily a disorder by itself, right? Having something bad happen to you and then have nightmares about it is no different than watching a scary movie and having nightmares about it. Your mind replays what it experienced during the consciousness while you're unconscious. But if those nightmares are so bad that they stop you from sleeping or that you have to do something chemical or behavioral in order to get a good night's rest, or at least not have nightmares, that's what we're talking about. This is also the category in which we discuss flashbacks. Now, a flashback is a misunderstood term, and it's a misused term. When we talk about flashbacks, we are actually talking about a dissociative event. So this is the idea that somebody can be walking through a park and suddenly just be gone and be lost in a memory where they lose track of the fact that they were in a park. And they will suddenly do things that don't belong to their actual circumstances. They will duck and hide. They will cower and cringe as if someone is attacking them. They will scream or lash out. A flashback is more than an intrusive memory. It's more than a strong recollection. It's different than a strong recollection. It is a loss of awareness of place, a dissociative event. What complicates matters is that unwanted memories, intrusive memories as we call them, are also part of criterion B. And 
this is what a lot of people think of when they're using the word flashbacks. They're sitting by themselves watching TV and some story comes up on the news and suddenly they're just find themselves vividly remembering what happened during their trauma. And they weren't trying to think about it. They weren't ruminating. They weren't reminiscing. The memory is thrust upon them. They remember where they are. They don't lose track of their surroundings. But they suddenly find themselves having a memory that they didn't want to have. And these can be very intense. But if you don't lose track of your awareness of your surroundings, it's not a flashback. And that's a distinction that maybe doesn't really signify for most people, but for a clinician, it's an important difference. Flashbacks are of a different nature than are intrusive, unwanted memories. Another category of criterion B is emotional distress. And this is very subjective, but the questions that we ask circle around the idea of, of how emotionally upset do you get? How distressed do you become when you are reminded of the trauma? So when you're sitting at home watching the news and a story comes up that brings you back, do you become emotionally engaged in that memory at the level of near where you were when the trauma actually happened? Some people can have the memory and remember it vividly and remain emotionally unaffected. And that's an indicator that the, emo that the memory is actually in the past and that it is not being currently processed the way that PTSD so frequently is. And then the last question we ask around Criterion B is about physical reactivity. So when you're having this memory, how, how physically obvious is it, right? How many physical symptoms do you have? Things like sweating palms and racing heartbeat and tension in the muscles. This physical agitation for some people can be so ever-present that they have a hard time discerning that it's actually getting worse when they have these memories. And for some people, it is the core thing that they notice, that they'll have a memory and their hands will start to shake. They'll have a memory and they will not be able to sit still. Uh, that kind of somatization is fairly common. The next criterion is criterion C, is the avoidance category. And for many people in my, in my field, Avoidance is the prime problem. The, the real difference between post-traumatic stress in a healthy sense and post-traumatic stress disorder. A lot of the disorders of post-traumatic stress disorder come in criterion C. The first kind of avoidance is active behaviors that are done to avoid thinking about or remembering the trauma. These internal strategies, these mental strategies, can be as simple as keeping yourself busy throughout the day so that you don't have time to be still and remember the bad event. Or it can be as damaging as multiple different addictions to various different drugs. These behaviors are complex. They are usually interwoven with a lot of other behaviors. But if... For instance, if the trauma that was suffered was the death of a friend, then it is not illogical for the trauma victim to just avoid having friends, to avoid the situation of friendship 
Because every time they think about having a friend or every time they feel like they've made a friend, they're reminded of the time their friend died. And over time, that can become a very serious problem. It can very negatively impact a, whole, a person's entire life. Imagine what that must be like to live in a world where you actively avoid making friends or thinking about friends or feeling friendship. It's a dangerously restricted life. Very similar to the strategies to avoid thinking or memories are strategies to avoid reminders in time and space. And sometimes that's the same thing. Reminders in time and space are usually connected most obviously to anniversaries, to specific places on the globe, specific types of places like parks or alleyways, specific types of people. A lot of this can be racial or cultural. When you're traumatized, your brain rapidly encodes every element that it can be aware of during the trauma. We call these flashbulb memories. And these play a huge role in our understanding and incorporation of information during trauma. From an evolutionary psychology standpoint, these flashbulb memories make a lot of sense. Nine, 10,000 years ago, when our ancestors were being hunted by saber-toothed tigers, it made a lot of sense for us to encode every detail about the moment when a saber-toothed tiger attacked our tribe. Those insignificant details, the time of day, the way the wind was blowing, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the rustling in the grass that might have been mistaken as nothing but was actually a saber-toothed tiger moving in for the strike, all of those things are encoded and imprinted in the trauma survivor's mind because they make us more able to recognize threat the next time all of those different elements happen again. Because if the saber-toothed tiger attacked at dusk on a Wednesday when it was cloudy and windy and a little cold and we had just eaten meat off the fire, who knows which one of those things was actually causal? Our minds don't care. Our brains don't care what the causal factors are. Our brains just remember everything that was happening around that time and assume that all of it had something to do with the trauma. And while this is horribly inaccurate, it is very useful for us to increase our survival because we be, become overly cautious. We become overly alert. And for those of you who were alive during any significant news event, you've probably had something very similar. I know for myself, when 9-11 happened, I know exactly where I was. I know what I was wearing. I know where I was standing. I know the position of furniture in the room because I have a flashbulb memory around that event as I watched it unfold on television. My mind knew that there was something so wrong and so important about that event that it encoded all of those details that had nothing to do with the attack on the Twin Towers. It encoded all of those details vividly. And while this is a great strategy in general for the survival of the species, when it is combined with our ability to ruminate, to obsess about certain events from the past, and our ability to have higher level moral implications to all of these events, 
These flashbulb memories become a core element in why PTSD is such a problematic disorder, why it resists recovery so well. Because we've got two systems that are fighting against each other. On the one hand, a vivid memory that refuses to be forgotten. And on the other hand, a painful emotional processing of that memory that wants nothing more than to be forgotten. And these two systems are at war with each other in someone with PTSD. But I digress. Back to Criterion C. These strategies to avoid can develop into an overwhelmingly isolated life. A life in which you restrict your access to sights, sounds, smells, places, songs, times of day, anniversaries. A life in which so many things around you in your environment are triggering and upsetting and painful that the person suffering from PTSD wraps himself in a behavioral avoidance cocoon. And it's this cocoon that is most obviously disordered. A lot of the veterans who have PTSD will self-medicate first thing. They will do anything they can to dull their emotional response. The easiest and most readily available way to avoid thinking or feeling is alcohol. And at first it might only be the anniversary of the trauma. That is a day that you have to be drunk the whole day so you don't, for you, so you don't let yourself think about it. But then there's the nightmares. And in order to avoid the nightmares, which are terrible, you just get blackout drunk every night when you're going to sleep. Well, it doesn't take long getting blackout drunk every night before you were a full-blown alcoholic. And not only are you going to damage your liver and do the obvious physical damages to yourself that alcoholism does, but you're also going to damage your entire life. You can't be blackout drunk every night without eventually getting a DUI. You can't be blackout drunk and show up to work every day hungover and still perform well at your job. Many of the soldiers I worked with who had PTSD had already done so much damage to their military careers that their careers were unsavable. They had broken so many laws, had multiple DUIs, drunk on duty, shown up to PT, still intoxicated in the morning. And these are all against the rules. So these soldiers would be kicked out of the army for misbehavior. And what they were really doing was medicating themselves for their PTSD, but the army couldn't abide that. So they get fired. And for soldiers, getting fired means you also lose your house. So now you're racked with these painful memories. You don't have a job. You are an active alcoholic because you're still having nightmares and you still need to get blackout drunk every night to not have, to not experience those. You have no source of income. So it becomes pretty obvious then how somebody might end up living on the streets. For somebody with really raging PTSD though, living on the streets as unpleasant as that might be, provides them with a ready source of other optimized avoidance techniques. And this is maybe a little bit overstated, but if you look and smell like a homeless person, nobody wants to be your friend. Nobody asks you, 
intrusive questions. Nobody wants to get into your business or know anything about you. You've effectively cut yourself off from society. And while that is a bad thing for most people, if Criterion C is really off the rails, it is wonderful and feels good for somebody with that level of PTSD to have cocooned themselves in such effective avoidance that nobody even wants to talk to them. They don't have a job. They don't have to perform to anybody's standards. They get to just avoid all of that stuff. As tragic as it is, criterion C, the avoidance criteria, is the one that is most damaging to people's lives. But for those with real, truly horrible PTSD, it is the one that feels like the only thing they can do to stay safe from these horrible memories. It's the one element where they feel like they have control, but that control is an illusion and it's actually their disorder robbing them of their life. Criterion D has to do with negative thoughts or feelings that have been worsened by the trauma. So this is philosophical. It has to do with the way people's beliefs and understandings of the world change as a result of trauma. So in some uh, rare cases, people will report that they forget major elements of the event. So this is rare in terms of military or combat trauma, but it's very common in individual traumas like rape or uh, sexual assault. Many people who are in those kinds of traumas where there are only one or two participants, but nobody else to really talk about the events or to kind of reminisce about things with later, those people will tend to lose details or block out details of what happened to them. And this is a protective measure taken by the psyche. For those who had a trauma that, where there were multiple witnesses, over the course of time, they will usually compare their story to somebody else. And this comparison will generally protect them from losing details of the event because they have somebody else to ask what happened and how do you remember this and what did you see? But even then in combat events where there are, you know, an entire unit in the same firefight, some soldiers will report completely different memories of an event than their comrades will have. And they will find that they've forgotten entire pieces. Like they'll, they'll remember every detail of an active firefight, but then they won't remember anything about an hour-long convoy ride back to base. Another thing that happens in Criterion D is we're looking for a worsening negative view of self and the world. Traumas create what we call moral injury, a sense that your understanding of yourself and the world and your place in the world is shattered, demolished. And when that becomes pervasive, when people become morose and kind of fixated upon the negativity around them, well, that has obvious negative side effects. That's very similar to the effects we see for somebody who is clinically depressed. And for somebody who's been traumatized, they can usually draw a clear line between how they saw the world and how they saw themselves before the trauma and then how that all changed afterwards. This is frequently experienced in terms of a, of a changing relationship with God or a changing life philosophy or a view of the pre-trauma self as being naive or childish and instead insisting that the way you see the world post-trauma is wiser, more experienced, more world-weary. 
There's also a tendency to fixate on blame, blaming of self or others. And this is a way that, the, that we have within our mind of processing and understanding what has happened to us and can become a fixation or almost, a, almost an obsession with blame. I've worked with several people just in the last month who, for, for whom this was their primary issue. They blamed themselves for the outcomes of some event. Whether or not it was actually genuinely their fault, that's how they've come to understand it. They process everything that happened to them through the lens of this is my fault. I should have done something different, something better, something other than what I did. And because I didn't do X, Y, or Z, the outcome was bad, therefore it is my fault. A lot of this philosophical stuff gets fixated upon the very best parts of ourselves. Somebody who has a deep sense of duty, of responsibility, of integrity, because they have that deep sense within themselves, when they are traumatized, they will use that duty, integrity, and responsibility to make sense of the trauma and usually end up feeling guilty, blamable, like it was their fault. When they might not have even been in the room. Some, this week we call this survivor's guilt. Sometimes the greatest traumas are suffered by those who weren't out on the mission. But while the mission was out there, somebody got really hurt or killed. And the survivor will tell themselves, they were in my seat. I should have been there. It should have been me. And because they are selfless and duty-bound and generous, they will think of all of the ways why their own death would have been less tragic than was the death of the person who actually died or the person who actually got injured. In this way, PTSD will latch on to our very greatest values like a parasite and, and use those values as fuel to keep the disorder alive. Obviously, there's a change in mood, right? a negative affect shift. So somebody who was really cheerful before the trauma can become very serious or somber. Somebody who was very excitable and happy can become very depressive. That's very common. There's also, uh, we, we also see a decrease in interest in activities that one used to really enjoy. So a case that I worked with a few years back was a dancer. She loved to dance, was always dancing. That was her favorite thing to do. Then she was raped. And after the rape, she no longer wanted to dance. She didn't consciously connect being raped to being a dancer, but there just wasn't any desire anymore to go to the dance studio and express herself in that way. And that was a huge loss for her. And this is very common for many people who've been traumatized, that they lose sight or the ability to access the joy of something they used to love to do, which is another one of the elements of Criterion D, the loss of the ability to experience positive emotion or having that ability be blunted. So that when something good is happening around you, something you feel like you used to get excited about or happy about, after the trauma, it leaves you flat. And the last element of Criterion D is related, closely related to some of the stuff we've already talked about, but it's a feeling of being isolated, socially distanced from other people around you. 
this is very closely related to the, to the elements of Criterion C, all of the avoidance stuff. It's difficult to still feel connected to people around you if you are protecting yourself by avoiding all social interaction. One of the most common ways I've heard this described among soldiers is that they hate talking to civilians because civilians ask stupid questions. And for a soldier, what they usually mean is if a civilian finds out that you've been to Afghanistan, the civilian's going to ask innocent questions that have no malice intended at all, but they evoke a lot of memories. So if a civilian finds out that a soldier was in Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam, invariably the question follows, what was it like over there? Well, what that question has just done is taken that former soldier out of their cocoon of avoidance and thrust them directly into the middle of a memory that they try very hard every day to not have. So that's obviously distressing. And if that keeps happening over and over again with all of the people that you might talk with and you haven't processed through those memories so they no longer have as much power over you, then obviously you're going to have a desire for less and less of those interactions. The Criterion D elements of PTSD, the philosophical problems, for me are almost always the most heartbreaking. The avoidance elements of Criterion C are the most pathological, but the changes in Criterion D usually indicate a person who has changed on a philosophical, spiritual, moral level. A person who has changed on the level of who they are, not just what they do or what symptoms they have, but they've been changed as a human being. They've lost something vital and important that they probably cherished and treasured about themselves before they were traumatized. They've lost an innocence and an ability to interface with the world on a pure level. This is always for me the most tragic and I grieve for this the most for my patients the loss of who they used to be in service of the trauma and all that it has taught them about who they quote unquote should be. Criterion E has to do with arousal and reactivity. So these are the external signs of what is otherwise an internal disorder. So famously, and unfairly, people with PTSD are, are often stereotyped as being irritable or aggressive. And this is really tragic because people with PTSD are not generally walking around angry and wanting to hurt people. Instead, they're walking around scared, on edge, because they feel like they could be attacked at any time. Everything around them reminds them of the day their friends died or the day they almost died or the day they were horribly attacked. So they're not mad, they're scared. But those two things express themselves very similarly to an external viewer. So there's an increased irritability or aggression because they're lashing out in fear. We also sometimes, this is kind of exotic, it doesn't happen too frequently with military combat trauma. We see this more in rape survivors, sexual assault survivors. But there is a pattern for risky or destructive behavior. That is, after the trauma has happened, people will do things that are reckless to external observers. And they can be as, as mundane as 
crossing the street without looking, kind of just this careless, if I die, who cares? They're not necessarily suicidal when they're doing this, but they're so, they're so hyped up. Their fight or flight reaction is so elevated at all times that the danger of crossing the street without looking in some ways feels like a relief because then the fear and the, and the adrenaline and the rush of almost getting hit by a car, at least they can place that. It makes sense as opposed to the constant tension and the constant anxiety they feel from their trauma, which cannot be easily identified and feels out of place and like an illness. We also see some veterans will, you know, buy a bullet bike and ride it without a helmet because they like the thrill, again, for the same reason. Now their adrenaline makes sense. But if they feel really tense and, and on a rush of adrenaline and fear while watching the news, that just feels silly. But if they have that same feeling while riding, while riding a bullet bike without a helmet, weaving in and out of traffic, then the rush makes sense to them. We also see a lot of heightened promiscuity among trauma survivors, particularly sexual trauma survivors. And this is a complex topic to talk about, probably its own whole episode that has to do with in a way, trauma survivors kind of circle the drain. As much as they try to avoid reminders of the trauma, they also find themselves pulled back to those similar activities almost as if by gravity. And that really is tragic and has horrible outcomes, but it's not uncommon. We also see a lot of hypervigilance, which just makes sense. With the irritability and aggression as an expression of fear, if you walk around being afraid all the time because you keep getting reminded of the day you almost died, of course you're going to be excessively watchful. Soldiers report this as being a tendency of always, for the remainder of their entire lives, checking the rooftops of every building they walk past for snipers, of sitting with their back against the wall at every restaurant they go to, of always looking for all the exits in any building they enter. These are partly learned behaviors from training, but they're also strongly reinforced by the fear of trauma and all of the other legacy formations within the mind of a traumatic event. Very connected to the hypervigilance is an increased startle reaction. So if a loud bang goes off, most people will jump and you know, their heart will race for five or six seconds and they'll calm right down and it'll be fine. Somebody who has experienced combat trauma has that loud bang go off next to them and it will take them 30 minutes to an hour to calm down so their heart stops racing and their hands stop sweating. And this is usually quite embarrassing for the person who, who experiences the startle response. They don't want the world to know that they're jumpy like that. So it's a double whammy for them. The loud boom goes off. Everybody else jumps and kind of looks around and wonders what that was. The person who's been traumatized jumps, immediately is taken back, potentially has a, flat, a full flashback, but otherwise is going to have a strong memory of an explosion that they barely survived. Now they've had, with zero warning and zero preparation, now they're thrust back into a horrible memory of a terrible day and their heart is racing, but it won't calm down because now they're re-experiencing how they felt when they were actually almost being killed. But it doesn't make sense to anybody around them. Nobody around them is having that same experience. 
Everybody around them is able to calm down within seconds. So they feel strange. They feel sick. They feel stupid when they have these responses. And they will usually try anything they can to get away from the scene in which somebody could you know, observe them reacting this way. Which also leads to more social avoidance, makes it easier and more comfortable to not have a job in the first place, etc., etc. And it's all interwoven. We also tend to see a difficulty concentrating for people who are actively dealing with all these trauma memories. That makes sense. If your headspace is being crowded out by a horrible negative memory, then how are you supposed to concentrate on whatever your professor is saying or whatever your kids are talking about or whatever's going on in the, on the movie screen? Distractibility and difficulty concentrating are not something that we are good at differentiating between. So somebody who is just constantly distracted by these memories might feel like they have something wrong with their mind, that their memory doesn't work, that they've got ADHD or, or some other kind of attention deficit, when really they're attending just fine, they just have too much to attend to. They don't have the same level of stimuli as the rest of the people around them. Sure, they have the external world that they're watching just like we are, but there's an overlay for them at all times. Their external world is overlaid by all of the reminders of all the horrible things that happened to them. So they're going to miss some details that you and I might readily see. And that's not because they have a deficit. It's because they have the same limited attention capacity as we do, but they're attending to all of the elements in that overlay as well that we don't have. If anything, people with PTSD are actually better at paying attention and concentrating than the people around them but the people around them don't know all of the things they're paying attention to. And then the last element of criterion E is difficulty sleeping. And this is obvious with all of the nightmares and all of the reminders that come upon us in that unconscious space where we cannot actively control what we think about. You cannot keep yourself busy. You cannot keep yourself distracted. And in the dream space, the memories will creep up on you and you have no defense. And for that single reason so many trauma survivors hate to sleep and they will avoid sleep if at all possible and they sleep only because they absolutely have to which is also damaging to their entire lives after criterion e is obviously criterion f and this is just about timelines if those symptoms last for more than a month then we will consider the symptom duration longer than is healthy from a normal trauma response. If those symptoms create distress or functional impairment, this is hotly debated and a lot of people uh, feel like this is too subjective and they want to bring in a standardized test for these levels of distress, but there's all sorts of problems with arguments on either side. The question becomes, do I as a clinician feel that all of the symptoms that the person is experiencing significantly impact their life and take from them the ability to live as a healthy, normal person would in an impactful way. So it's a judgment call that I have to make as a clinician to determine whether or not all of these symptoms create significant distress or, clinic or functional impairment. Criterion H is that the symptoms can't be caused 
by drugs or other illnesses. They can't be eaten more readily accounted for by something else. Sometimes these symptoms will look like a psychosis, especially the flashbacks and the trouble sleeping. So there are a lot of things that overlap symptomologically with PTSD, and we have to winnow those things out. We have to be able to say within reason that the symptoms that we are seeing are genuinely caused by the traumatic event as opposed to some other potential source. And there are lots of those potential sources, but I don't need to get into all of those today. So that's it. That is the diagnostic picture of PTSD. And those are the things that I, as a clinician, have to keep in mind when someone comes in and sits down in my office and tells me that they think they might have PTSD or somebody else told them that they do have PTSD. The problems come up with the fact uh, that there is such thing as a normal and natural healthy response to trauma. And that healthy response to trauma has a lot in common with the post-traumatic stress disorder. The differences are in terms of timelines and severity. And a lot of people who are told they have PTSD don't in fact have PTSD, but instead what they have is a healthy trauma response. But they're responding to a trauma that nobody else experienced. So their responses will always be alien to those who never had the event. One of the metaphors that I use to express this is if you've never gone skiing and you're taking skiing lessons for the first time and you're enjoying the feeling and the experience, but it's all new to you. If there's somebody next to you who is a very experienced skier who got caught in an avalanche years and years ago. You as a new skier might be very, very excited about skiing in powder and the idea of backcountry skiing, but that person who got caught in an avalanche may not find that kind of skiing exciting at all anymore. And that's not because they're disordered. It's because they had a dangerous experience that taught them a different way of seeing the world. And if they can still ski, and if they still enjoy skiing, but there's only a specific element of skiing they don't like doing anymore because of their trauma, that is not PTSD. Because their life still functions, their life still works. We need to allow there to be room for people to learn from their own accidents, mistakes, traumas, victimizations. If you've never had your house broken into and you grow up in Mayberry, leaving your door unlocked is not a bad idea. But once your house has been burglarized or you move into a rougher part of town, leaving your door locked just makes sense, even though that is a change in behavior. So this is one of my soapboxes I get on a lot. We need to allow people to have the ability to learn and to change, especially when they go and do something as, as life impacting as going to combat or surviving a sexual assault. It is completely inappropriate for us to expect somebody who has been traumatized to go on living as if nothing has changed for them, because it has. And if we label all of the changes that are brought to bear on somebody who's been traumatized, if we label all of them as disorder, then we have stopped anybody from being able to be normal after combat. So if you know somebody who has been traumatized and you have recognized that something about them has changed, Try to keep yourself from stigmatizing that change. Try to appreciate it and understand 
that a lot of that change in learning is adaptive. It's not disordered unless it starts changing their life and limiting their ability to enjoy their life and live it the way they want to live. So the question often arises, why do some people get PTSD and others don't? In the military, this happens a lot. You'll have two guys who are in a firefight, the same exact combat, standing side by side through the exact same events and they lose the same friends. One of them will develop really terrible PTSD and the other one will recover and more or less be the same person they were before. So how does that happen? How does one person develop a horrible life-changing disorder and the other one bounce back pretty much without being impacted? And this is what I mentioned before, that PTSD is like a parasite that latches on, if we don't stop it, to our very best nature. Whether or not you get PTSD determined, is dependent not upon what happens to you, but how you make sense of it. And this is not to say that that difference is a small thing. It is an enormous thing. That difference takes place in your mind. And a lot of people think that that's an insult. That if I say, oh, it's just in your head or it's just in your mind, as if that means it's smaller. It's not. Your mind is bigger than the universe in which it exists. Let's talk about that just for a minute. One of my favorite poems is from Emily Dickinson. And I'm going to try to remember it verbatim. Let's see if I still have it memorized. The brain is wider than the sky. For hold them side by side. The one the other will include. And you and me beside. The brain is deeper than the sea. For hold them blue to blue. The one the other will absorb. As sponges buckets do. The brain is just the weight of God. For weigh them pound for pound, and they will differ if they do, as syllable from sound. What she's getting at there is that your mind, your brain, includes an awareness of all things that you could possibly observe. And to each thing that you can possibly observe, your brain applies an extra level of meaning. And the meaning does not exist within the object. The meaning exists exclusively inside your own mind. So it's almost like you have two realities inside your own mind. The one that can be observed, and then the much larger one that is all of the understandings about all of the observed things. So just take a second to think about that. Everything you can, can perceive, you have already decided dozens if not hundreds of things about it the instant you perceive it. Take a mental uh, experiment. Look at whatever is sitting closest to your right hand. You know hundreds of things about that object. Is it safe? Is it fun? Is it mine? Is it blue? Is it new? Is it stolen? Is it embarrassing? Is it out of place? Etc. 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 That knowledge is ever present. You know those things about everything in your environment. And you also have that same level of understanding about every memory and every known aspect of yourself. We have millions of these awarenesses all the time, non-stop. So put a traumatic event into that engine. And if that trauma happens and we put meaning to it, 
such that the, the event means something permanently horrible about ourselves or about other people in the world, then that permanent horribleness means that we are forced to keep dealing with that horribleness for the rest of our lives. So if my friend dies and I'm trying to offer him first aid and he bleeds out in my arms, if I tell myself that it's my fault he died because I should have done more to save him, then the memory of his death will always be connected to that meaning that I assign to it until I change the meaning. And if every time I remember his death, I punish myself for not doing enough to save him, and I feel racked with guilt that my best friend in the world is dead now because I didn't do enough. Well, that's an everyday problem. That's not a problem of yesterday or five years ago or 20 years ago when the trauma happened. That's a problem of now. Right now, today, I feel like I'm a terrible person because I couldn't save my friend's life. But that's a decision I made. It didn't feel like a decision. It doesn't feel like a decision for the people who were doing it. It's their sense of honor, their sense of duty, their sense of pride, their sense of responsibility that brings them to see themselves as the bad guy in their own story. They violate their own morals, their own values. And this is an ongoing struggle that they will have until they resolve it. And the good news is, it can be resolved. We can decide what our past means. Even the very worst things that have ever happened to us, we get to change the meaning of the past right now in the present. And once we do that, when we change the stories that we tell ourselves about the past, we change the impact the past has on our present. If we let these very best parts of us get us stuck in PTSD, right, our sense of responsibility or duty or rightness, then the disorder latches on to those parts of us and just orbits indefinitely. So somebody will develop PTSD if they are highly likely to blame themselves, if they are highly responsible and see themselves as an agent in all the events that happen to the, in their lives, if they have a hard time letting go of control, they are more likely to develop PTSD. The people who don't develop PTSD are the ones who have an agile understanding of the world. So sure, they still have a sense of duty and a sense of propriety and a sense of responsibility, but they also have an ability to let themselves off the hook. They have an ability to natively understand even horrible events in multiple different lights. So for them, if their friend bleeds out in their arms, these are the people who can say to themselves, I did everything I could, and the death of my friend is a tragedy but it's not my fault because I actually did everything that I could. They don't need to keep beating themselves up over the death and telling themselves that it was somehow their own fault. There's no significant difference between those two people. It's just that one of them has a rigid way of seeing the world that involves their own blame 
and the other one has an agile, flexible way of seeing the world where they can absolve themselves from guilt. What we do in therapy, what we do in treatment for PTSD, especially in the school of cognitive processing therapy, is we help people to understand when they have these ways of thinking, when they have these rigidly, specifically punishing ways of seeing themselves in the world that keep the trauma fresh and active. And instead of letting it be a problem of two decades ago, it remains a problem of today because of how they view themselves differently and how they view the world as a permanently unsafe, threatening place or themselves as a permanently flawed and failing person rather than somebody who experienced something terrible a long time ago. We see this all the time in sexual assault survivors who blame themselves somehow for something they did that caused the assault. And that feels like control. If a woman who was raped tells herself that she was dressed like a slut the day she was raped, then that feels like something she can control. And there's an illusion of security in that thought. However, a woman who says to herself, I was raped because a person in my area was a monster and raped me, that woman has less blame. The problem is less about her and more about random chance, which feels like less control, but it also brings with it less pain. So there's a lot of paradox that is involved with trauma. There's a lot of pain involved on either side, regardless of how you interpret it. But the people who are going to come down with PTSD tend to be the people who have the hardest time letting go of control, letting go of blamability, have the hardest time understanding themselves as being a member of the chorus as opposed to the star of the show. So a few words about recovery and then we'll wrap it up. PTSD is not permanent. We see people recover fully from PTSD all the time. We graduate dozens of people from our program every month. This is not a death sentence. It will not be with you your entire life. But lifting it, recovering it from it, does take work. The work of therapy is very much like the work of going to the gym. You can have a personal trainer show you all the right exercises, but the lifting, the sweating, the pain has to be experienced by you. You have to do it yourself. And if you do that work with PTSD, if you actually lean in to your own way of thinking about the terrible things that have happened to you, PTSD can go away. If you take the treatment seriously and you are willing to let go of the things that are holding you inside the trauma, it is possible to completely recover from PTSD and to go back to the person you used to be before it all even happened. More to the point, it's possible for you to go to a new place you've never been before because maybe you don't want to be the person you were before the trauma. Maybe you were too trusting or too naive or too innocent or too ignorant. You don't want to be that person again. You want to be a better version of yourself, but one that is not so burdened by the pain of the horrible things that have happened to you. Well, that's exactly what PTSD treatment does. 
is we allow trauma to become growth. Because the opposite of post-traumatic stress disorder is post-traumatic growth. And very many people that I have worked with over the years who have recovered from their own PTSD blossom into a new era and a new phase of post-traumatic growth that is wonderful to see. When they recognize that they have power to leave the trauma behind and to step beyond the trauma, they step into a new level of power and capacity that is really wonderful. And the vast majority of them become motivational speakers for recovery and they become these great icons to those around them of what is possible. And instead of being haunted by their past, they are motivated by their futures. All right. Well, that's, I think, enough time for one topic. Thank you very much for joining me. And as always, thank you very much for your support and for all of your encouragement. I hope this episode was useful. If not for you, then I hope it was useful to help you understand somebody around you who might have been traumatized at some point. And as a last little plea, I would ask you that if you know somebody who seems like they might have PTSD, help them get help. Encourage them to reach out and get support because there is support to be had. There is help for this disorder. It can be cured. It's not even that difficult to cure. And the process of recovering from PTSD, it can be both quick and even enjoyable. These people can get their lives back and can get back on track. So please, if you have suffered a trauma and you recognized yourself in some of the things that I said, don't wait. Treatment works. And if you know somebody who seems like they might have PTSD, advocate for them. Encourage them. Be their cheerleader in recovery. All right. That's all for today. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, I have been Dan Roberts, and this has been One More Think. Let's take care of each other. Mm -hmm.